This is episode 233 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are Propane versus Gas Generators, What to Consider, and 5 Prepping Rules that are Actually Myths. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, I would like to welcome all the new listeners, and if you're not subscribed yet, make sure that you get a chance to do that in iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast network. Hey, don't forget that the Prepper Bundle is still on sale. The Prepper Bundle is going to be on sale till Wednesday. That is a great way to get a lot of preparedness content for not a lot of money. And if you do purchase it through my affiliate link, forward your invoice over to me. I'd like to send you a special bonus just for Prepper Website listeners. All right, so let's go ahead and get started into the first article of the podcast. This one comes to us from BackdoorSurvival.com. And uh, the article is entitled Propane Versus Gas Generators, What to Consider. And I think it was a very, you know, sometimes, you know, I got to be honest, right? Sometimes you judge a book by its cover. Sometimes you judge an article by its title. Uh, There's a lot of good information here. And so if you are considering a generator or even if you are considering maybe dealing with propane or gas at some point in, you know, in a, in a survival situation or, uh, you know, just something that you're, you're dealing with, uh, something you're stockpiling. Uh, maybe you're stockpiling propane for uh, a gas grill, right? Uh, now this is going to be an interesting article for you. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Power generators are an essential part of most prepping master plans. While solar power is an option, A backup generator offers many people a better alternative and access to power during an emergency. One of the big differences between solar and generators is that a propane or gas generator is portable. And I just, I want to cut in really, really quick right here, right on the, uh, the beginning of this article. Uh, you know, there are solar generators that are portable and you can easily move them. I know that she's talking about a solar array because a little bit later on in the article, she mentions a solar array, but there are solar, uh, panels that are, uh, portable and, you know, you can break them down if you don't have them already locked down into a solar array or whatever. And even in a solar array, you just, yeah, you, know, you would have to break them down. Okay, so let's go ahead and keep going here. If you have to bug out, then you must leave behind the solar array. There are solar power generators, but we will discuss those in a separate blog. In this blog, we focus on the pros and cons of gas and propane generators. The first thing that comes to mind when I start to compare fuels are those long lines at the gas station during a hurricane. It reminds me that during a catastrophic event, gas is difficult to find, harder to get to, and very much in demand. Then there is the problem of pumping gas. No power means no gas. So as a fuel source, gasoline has issues. The only solution is to buy it in volume and store it, which causes other issues. Gas goes bad after a while and condensation can cause even more problems. It evaporates if exposed to air. Storing large quantities is a hazard during other emergencies such as fires. There are solutions. We have a fuel shed that sits away from everything else. Generally, we have around 20 gallons of gas on the property for use in all the gas-powered tools and whatnot. It is a system we treat the same way we do the food storage system we have in place. 
using the oldest first, rotating the supply, and replenishing it at the 50% mark. It is a system that works well and leaves us with a small supply of gas for emergencies before we have to face the crowds at the gas station if an emergency should occur. So, while gas has issues, there are solutions that can work. We have planned for an above-ground fuel storage tank, which worked well on the farm, but the gas trucks cannot make it out here to fill it, and we have local yahoos that like to drive around and shoot things. We instead opted for a four, five-gallon plastic gas can system, which is easy to handle and refill. We also have a small herd of one-gallon cans that we use to refill the equipment. The system still requires effort and care. Propane is a much simpler fuel source. Yes, it is still explosive, burns, etc. Still, I don't worry nearly as much about the propane tanks as I do about the fuel shed. The biggest benefit of using propane is that the propane gas trucks have no problem getting out here, so refueling is easy. Propane also stores much better than gasoline because it is a liquid that converts to gas when used. For the house, we have a 200-gallon tank which lasts about a year. We top it off every quarter. We also have a 50-gallon tank, which is for emergency use. In addition, we keep four of the five-gallon tanks on hand for everyday use and refill those when two are empty. Most gas power generators come with a predetermined tank size and, depending on the efficiency of the unit, must be monitored often so as not to run out. There is also the chore of refilling a gas tank from a gas can. Fumes, spills, and having to remember to refill it. With propane generators, you determine the tank size and those can range from 5 gallon to 100 plus gallon tanks. This means that you can use the generator as needed without all the labor or management that a gas power generator requires. I have amplified the difference here more to show that propane is easier. The reality is that you likely will only use a generator for a few hours at a time during an emergency to preserve your fuel source. So the labor between the two for that setting is minimal. However, in a situation where you need power 24-7, propane is much easier to use. When you choose a generator, you want to pay close attention to the power it generates versus the fuel it uses. Efficiency is a big deal. Clearly, you want a unit that produces the most energy with the least amount of fuel consumption. In cold weather environments, gas or white gas is superior over propane, which is stored in liquid form or LPG. Liquid propane gas is different from natural gas, which is comprised mostly of methane and difficult to store as a liquid. The problem with LPG is not usually the gas, but the regulator. As a gas, LPG freezes but it does so at some ungodly temperatures of minus 306.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Oddly, it boils at negative 43.6 degrees Fahrenheit. An LPG system uses pressure to raise the boiling point of propane so that remains a liquid. The problem is not so much the gas, but the regulator, which reduces the pressure so that the amount of gas released is usable. In cold weather, regulators can freeze And when that happens, there is no more gas available until the regulator defrosts. This process is also compounded by the fact that as propane turns from a liquid to a gas, it robs heat from the surrounding metal, which is also why the container gets cold as you use the gas. In sub-zero temperatures, that process puts the regulator at more of a risk for freezing. The freezing temperature of gasoline is negative 70 degrees Fahrenheit. 
So in colder climates, an emergency generator run by gas can be better than one run by propane. You can adjust for these kinds of deficits by making sure that both the generator and its fuel source are shielded from extreme conditions, but doing so can also cause an exhaust issue. Okay, let me stop just really quick here. Uh, in the comments section, there was uh, there was people weighing in on the, the regulators freezing. And some said, uh, there were some people that said, you know, at, at negative 30 degrees, I've never had my regulator freeze. And then other people were saying, yes, I've had my regulator freeze. And so, you know, there's some differences there. I, I'm betting there's some differences in sizes and there's some differences in, uh, you know, in manufacturers and then the way that uh, maybe they are insulated because, you know, there are ins ways that you can insulate them uh, from the cold. And uh, so, you know, I have, for instance, I have a propane generator. I have, actually have a dual fuel propane generator. The regulator on that one might be a, a little bit smaller than maybe one that's coming, a regulator that's coming off one of the big tanks, right? And so, I don't know, that might be what the difference is. I'm not that familiar. I, again, I live in Houston, Texas. I don't live up north like you guys who are dealing with these uh, crazy, crazy temperatures up there. So, uh, but there, you know, there are, I just wanted to point that out. There are some people in the comment section that are saying different things about their regulator. Some saying they've never had it freeze and others have said that they, that they have had it freeze at those low temperatures. So I just kind of wanted to point that out to you. All right, continuing on. How much energy do you need? You're going to have to answer this question, especially if your generator is used for prepping. The reason for this is to figure out how much fuel you need to store to meet your energy needs for X amount of time. You also need to consider replacement fuel and whether that is going to be an issue in your area. If there is an earthquake, I cannot reasonably expect the gas company to deliver gas if the road is damaged. How then will I replace the fuel for the generator after a week or even a month? These sorts of issues should be addressed in your prepping strategy. We use gas for cooking and heating in winter. So the backup to that is to cook using wood and to burn firewood as a heat source during the winter months. On a regular basis, we use both gas and wood heat so that the furnace gets some usage, especially at night and in the mornings before the wood stove gets warm enough to offset the temperature. It is a system that works well. In the event of a natural disaster or if fuel becomes scarce, we can switch to 100% wood heat and cook either by electricity or wood. We have a small solar storage unit on the roof that keeps water warm enough in the afternoon to bathe. The water heater is electric, so if the power goes out, we have the solar backup. These systems mean that we have a diminished need for electricity during an emergency. Those needs include keeping the fridge and freezers cold and supplying lights as needed. It also means that 200 gallons of propane can last us for a long while, more than a year, because we have substitutes for other gas needs. Those are all examples of how my energy strategy works. In the direst of situations, we could boil water for bathing and cleaning. The reality is that you must understand your energy needs before you begin shopping for a generator. This blog walks you through some of the common problems, but every steed has its own challenge. Those are all issues that you must face. So while I could say that I prefer propane generators over those powered by gas, it is very rarely, it very rarely gets below 15 degrees Fahrenheit here, and I don't have to worry much about the regulators freezing. It's insulated anyway. Delivery and replacement. 
Propane is typically easier to have delivered. It is also safer to store and can be used directly from its original container rather than having to refill a fuel tank. In an emergency, obtaining gas is iffy. Fuel stations run out of gasoline due to the higher demand and there are decreased opportunities for that gas to be replaced until after other issues, such as road damage or fixed. Which source works best for your situation? For mine, propane is superior to gas. Storage. Except in the coldest of environments, propane works well. If you are in an area where the temperature is below zero, then gasoline might be a better option for you. For me, storing gas is an issue because we are so prone to wildfire and gas is highly flammable. Use. How much energy you use and what options you have for supplying that energy is the biggest questions of all. Propane is the choice for me in my situation because I can safely store more of it and I have built-in backups that substitute how I use power. So the answer is to which is better, gas versus propane, is highly subjective. There is also not a blanket answer and any answer you come up with should be supported by your preparedness strategy. Alright, so uh, good article there, just kind of a little overview um, this person that is writing, you know, is, is on a homestead that have, again, has a little bit more room to be able to have a shed where they're keeping some gas away from every every place, you know, all the other places uh, around the homestead. And then uh, has, uh, you know, the propane and uh, then the wood stove and then the solar array. So what I like about, you know, their setup here is they do have a lot, there's a lot of redundancy here if uh, if if it's needed for whatever reason. I like the idea of if there is a SHTF situation or even an earthquake or a hurricane or something along those lines, you're not so dependent on gasoline to run your generator. You have those options uh, definitely, you know, and so, uh, you know, and then again, all that redundancy. One thing that I want to say here before we move on is I have heard and I just I haven't confirmed and I really haven't talked with my insurance person. But I have heard that, and I can't remember if I read it somewhere, that the the twenty, I guess the the twenty pound tanks, I guess uh, that you use for your uh, for your gas grills, and if you, for instance, if you have a, a propane and a gas generator, um, you know this article is very. Uh, very correct in the fact that, uh, you know, if there is a, a poop hit the fan situation, there might be long gas lines, long lines at the gasoline station, but I could very easily go to Home Depot or even, you know, uh, Walmart or, or, you know, Target. I can go to, you know, there's so many stores, even the local grocery, there's a local grocery store here uh, that uh, has propane, sells propane. And so I go in there and just trade out my, my tanks or whatever, and I don't have to, you know, stand in a bunch of lines. But again, uh, I heard that uh, you can't have a certain amount of those tanks, you know, in your home for so for whatever reason. If you have more than two or something along those lines, and again, don't quote me on that. But if you have more than two, it uh, you know invalidates your insurance. And so, for instance, if your house burnt down, and even if those weren't weren't the cause of it. That could cause you from losing any insurance money because you, uh, you know, you you weren't operating safely or whatever. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. I'm I'm not 100% sure. That's not something that I've asked my insurance person before, um, but uh, something that you know maybe you might want to look into if if you are going to be storing 
those tanks. You know, there's maybe a certain amount of, of gallons of, of propane tanks that you can have. Or even maybe it's not specific tanks. Maybe it's just a certain amount of gallons, right? Because you can have uh, a big 50-gallon or 100-gallon propane tank maybe like sitting in your garage or whatever. And so anyway, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. Maybe somebody out there knows that information and you can share that uh, with us. You can come over to the Prepper website, podcast.com. And uh, drop me a line in the comment section of episode 233. You can email me or hit me up on social media. Uh, I'd love to have that information, and then uh, I would uh, just you know pass that along to everyone uh, in a future podcast. All right, so uh, that was over at Backdoor Survival. There's a lot of links, uh, good good information over there. And uh, if you have a generator, you know that you know there there are dual fuel generators out there, and then there are. Um, attachments that you can buy that you can convert you know so conversion kits where you can convert uh, a gas uh, a gas generator into a propane generator and uh, it's not it's really not hard to do uh, from what I've seen uh, and, you know I've, I've heard people talk about it I've gone over to uh, to expos where people have talked about it and discussed it um, there's places online where you can buy them and uh, from what I understand the the they have great customer service. They you know they will they will talk you through whatever you need for your type of uh, generator. But you know so if you have a gas generator generator and maybe you were like man I'd really like to have propane, uh, you can you can convert that you know. And so there you go. All right, again that's over at BackdoorSurvival.com. Our next article comes to us from AskAPrepper.com. And this article you know it's a really this is a no a very practical no nonsense kind of in your face really uh article because uh the the title is five prepping rules that are actually myths and uh, so i really like this article because it, it really sets some things straight and so uh, i i think you're gonna enjoy it as well especially if you're new to prepping um, or maybe you've been prepping for a while and there's some things out there that you just always hear but uh you know they might not be as as important or as relevant or as true as uh, as everyone touts it. So anyway, so let's go ahead and start reading this one again. Uh, five prepping rules that are actually myths. Rules. The word itself makes me cringe. I have been anti-authoritarian all my life, so I bristle at the idea of rules in general. Still, as something evolves, it tends to make up some rules on its journey. Prepping has been no different. There have been guidelines by which all people who call themselves preppers adhere. These rules or guidelines tend to help grow a community because they define what the community is all about. My biggest problem with rules is that the world is not yes or no, nor is it black or white. Prepping is no different. There is nuance and circumstances to consider. In this article, I hope to shed some light on five prepping rules that are actually myths. You will be surprised by some of these, but I will also tell you how to get these practices right so they can benefit you again. So dehydrated food storage meals last 25 years. That's the first rule. Preppers put a lot of merit into their food storage, and rightly so. It will take some serious amount of food to survive a full-on collapse. Luckily for preppers, there is no shortage of internet retailers selling long-term dry food storage. The questions come when we start talking about the purported 25 to 30 year shelf life. One thing we all can agree on is that good food is not meant to sit around for three decades. 
Of course, we aren't depending on our survival food to be the best meal we've ever had, right? Still, what is this 25-year shelf life all about? Most companies will spend the large print on this promise. What they rarely mention is that this shelf life is only attainable by keeping your food storage at temperatures of 55 degrees Fahrenheit or less. Of course, this changes everything. Who has a climate-controlled room for their food storage? Very few preppers can store even a minimal amount of food storage at this temperature. So, your long-term food storage is not as long-term as you think. So, get it right. To truly win at the game of food storage is to practice rotation. You must be using all that you store. Do not put a single thing on your shelf that you don't plan on using. You can keep a stockpile, but you must also keep it moving. Avoid the sales on items you are not going to integrate into your stockpile. The myth is that your food storage will last for 25 years. That doesn't mean you cannot have a year's worth of food on hand. If you are actively eating that food and rotating it, then you will have success. The next rule or myth is the bug out. One of the cornerstones of all prepping, the bug out, is supposed to get us out of harm's way in a hurry. You cannot find a prepping website that doesn't feature an article or several about the bug out. You might be surprised to find this on the list, but it's true for most preppers. The bug out is a myth. The idea of the bug out is something that gets passed around. Of the people who have a bug out bag and read the articles, I often wonder how many have executed a bug out in just the way it would go down. Moreover, how many people have executed a bug out with the whole family? Most preppers have not even made it as far as writing their bug out plan down. The very basics of a practice like readout. Beyond readout, there are things like routes that need to be considered rally points, catches, and, of course, alternate routes if you find that your initial bug-out location is compromised. The bug-out is by far the most oversimplified prepper rule that, for most preppers, is a myth. So how do you get it right? If you want to turn this myth into a reality, you need to follow the process from start to finish. Then you need to rehearse the process. With a notebook and maps, you must sit down and plot your course. Here is my quick 10-step written bug-out process. 1. Print 8x10 maps of your neighborhood, your town, your city, and your bug out location. Number two, looking at the maps, decide on two short distance bug outs, areas you can travel five miles or less to escape danger. Number three, now seek out two locations that are 20 miles or more away, mark them on the map. Number four, plot your course on on these maps to each bug out location. Number five, notate food, water, and other resources along the way. Number six, notate locations to bury caches. Number seven, notate rally points. Number eight, place all this information into a binder. Number nine, put your bag on this weekend and go find a spot. And number 10, come home and start modifying your plan to deal with real world issues you find on your treks. So good points there. Uh, I actually just released an article, College Prepping, uh, you know, bugging out from college if it's necessary. Uh, and in, in that, I don't go into the details of these 10 things here, but do talk about making sure that you have multiple routes home if, uh, if that's something that you need to, uh, uh, you know, need to do. And so you've, that's over at edthatmatters.com. And like I said, I just released that uh, just uh, actually this evening. All right, the, the next rule or myth is successful and sustainable foraging. I love foraging. I have field guides and I eat as much wild food as I can when it's easy to get. 
I have watched homesteaders truly take advantage of wild foods and I'm always looking to them to see prepper skills in practice. The homesteaders are taking the action that most preppers are only talking about. The studying of foraging is not the rule that is a myth. In fact, if more preppers diligently studied foraging and practiced it in their areas, they would be better equipped in the wild. They would also better understand its limits. All that said, foraging alone will never sustain you, let alone your family. This is the fundamental issue with foraging. You can eat all the berries and cattails you want this week. They will not sustain you like meat or fish. More importantly, these resources will be gone once you have consumed them. Foraging is not a substitute food source. It is merely a bridge between meals. If you attempt to do more than this with wild foraged plants, you are going to starve. Be very careful about how much you depend on foraging in a survival situation. I prefer it as a peripheral task while waiting for animals or fish traps to yield protein. So how do you get it right? Foraging is a subsidy. You must treat it like such. Do not spend your entire day foraging unless you have protein traps set, meat smoked, or some other method of getting better nutrition. To get foraging right, you must give it a lot of time and practice. You must read, see, handle, and taste these wild foods. You need to know which ones you like and how your body reacts to them. This is crucial. Wild foods deserve your respect and attention, but plants and seeds will never get you through the long haul. You must have skills to get yourself some protein. All right, the next rule or myth is preparing for martial law. Martial law or overbearing militant government rule is one of the most popular post-apocalyptic themes in all of prepping. The idea that post-collapse our government will gather together a mighty, well-armed, well-organized force to monitor all the metro areas is just not reality. Where would this great force of fighters come from? How would a force of any size monitor some 300 million people? We need only look at some of the most recent disasters to understand what the government and the military are truly capable of. Relief and aid would take up most of the military force across the nation. Sending the rest into neighborhoods to control the population, confiscate guns, and instill curfews would be suicide. Nationwide martial law is a myth. So how do we get it right? There will be some semblance of law struggling to stay in power. This will be true of all localities. In this event, your family will be at risk. You may have individuals who have been given too much power or desperate people making decisions to keep order. Murder without justice is what I mean. Rather than preparing for nationwide martial law, you must be prepared to gather emergency intelligence using things like police scanners, shortwave radios, and HD camera drones. When you get your cues and you find that the police are disbanding, it's time to hit the road or at least head to one of those short-term bug out locations we talked about earlier. All right, the next one is tactical training. You are no match for a gang of armed thugs. You may be a veteran, you may be highly trained, but you have a weakness that is never discussed on tactical forums. You have a family. David Jones, a 24-year army vet, taught me about acceptable casualties one day. He explained that when a fighting force engages, engages a target, there are acceptable casualties. As a prepper, you do not have any acceptable casualties. Who is an acceptable casualty? Your wife? Little Timmy? I mean, you don't even want to lose your brother-in-law. The gang you are facing does not share the same sentiment for their men-at-arms. While tactical training and movement drills can prove to be helpful in a collapse scenario, you should really be moving away from conflict and keeping quiet to avoid any altercation. 
If you find yourself daydreaming about your 300 blackout body armor and gunfights, you're going about this all wrong. Focus on a strategy of deterring and avoiding conflict until it is totally unavoidable. So how do we get this right? You are not a warfighter. You are probably a father or mother and based on U.S. averages, you are probably out of shape. Don't put the people you love in danger by taking unnecessary risks. Being aggressive and offensive will not end well. Tactical training doesn't just have to be about shooting guns and breaching homes. You should pay attention to military formations and how these groups move silently. Also, you can focus on SERE training to avoid capture and detection. To be tactical as a family leader and a prepper, focus on communication, intelligence, and stealth. All right. I think this is a great article. James uh, James did an awesome job here. Hey, there's 42 comments. And uh, like I always say, when there's a ton of comments, there's a lot of usually a lot of good information there because people are providing more information and they're, you know, they're, they're coming with that uh, and, and sharing that. So anyway, uh, go check this article out over at askaprepper.com and uh, check out these rules. I mean, they're very practical, very sensible, uh, very just kind of think it through, you know. Uh, you know, again, it's very easy when you're new to preparedness. And if you are new, uh, welcome and, and uh, welcome to the journey, you know. And uh, you, you probably are new and you're coming into preparedness, realizing that we live in a very, very fragile world. Um, but, you know, uh, there's so many things out there that are written and that are said. And you really need to, you know, when you first, when you first, your eyes are opened up, uh, you're just kind of taking it all in and, and you're just processing it all. And it's very easy to allow, you, you know, your mind to, to run off on some of these things. And then you start settling down a little bit. You start thinking through these things. You start really, truly reflecting. Maybe you start looking at some real world things like this article talks about, you know, like, hey, look at what's going on in, in, in Puerto Rico. You, you know, look at some of the other disasters, you know, like what happened here, even what happened here with uh, Hurricane Harvey. It wasn't the government that got moving and started helping people. It was people that started volunteering and, and, and coming out and, and, and helping other people. Uh, you know, the government did come and help and you know, organizations did come and help. But really, the, the first responders were uh, individuals, people who weren't uh, their homes weren't damaged and they were helping other people. And then, you know, we had people from all over from Louisiana coming in and from all over the place, really. Uh, I know I have a, a pastor friend who uh, was down, you know, in the, the around the Galveston area and he's had church teams come from all over the country. Uh, helping out, you know, and they're going in and, and mucking out homes, and and really that's all kind of done. Now they're they're all going on to other stages, but you know, people from all over the all over the country were coming and, and helping out, and still coming and helping out, and uh, so you know th- that's great. But a lot of a uh, lot of good advice here. I really appreciate articles like this. So uh, again, that's askaprepper.com. Good job, James, on on, on that one. Well, all right, guys, that's it for the Monday podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for starting your week off with me. I look forward to sharing more preparedness content with you through episodes this week. Hey, if you get a chance, come over to the Prepper website, podcast.com, and, uh, you know, share out our episodes. We really appreciate it when uh, when listeners do that and kind of get the word of the Prepper website podcast out there. And uh, if you get a chance and you are on social media, I'd love to connect with you. You can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. 
Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.